Well, the retreat is half over now. (laughs) (laughs) The hard part is coming. (laughs) The transition time between space of silence and the busyness of our worldly engagement is really a very, (coughs) very difficult transition to make. And you'll see, perhaps you've already seen uh, this afternoon, just in the talking, but certainly tomorrow, as you get back on the highways, you'll need to go faster than 20 miles an hour. (laughs) (laughs) And then getting home and re-engaging with your life. It's uh, difficult. It's a shift. There'll be a lot of ups and downs, you know, energetically and emotionally. So it's helpful to know that that is part of it. There's nothing wrong and it's not a mistake. And it's just in that process of re-engaging, we go through a lot of swings. The Buddha gave one teaching which serves like a lighthouse to illuminate the realm of our worldly activities. He said that when we practice, wisdom grows. And when we don't practice, wisdom wanes. This is really important because sometimes we have the notion that we practice, practice really hard, and we develop some wisdom, and it's something we have. It's not quite like that. It's much more alive within us. When we practice, the wisdom grows, and we can apply it in our lives. And when we don't practice, the insights of the wisdom that we've developed really gets covered over. You know, and we begin to lose connection, lose touch. <clears throat> One Tibetan teacher expressed it very succinctly. He said, we have to do what we know. Simply knowing is not enough. We need to put it into practice. So how can we do this practically so that it's not just a good idea that we hear, but how can we actually put the Dharma into practice in our lives? to understand deeply that life is our practice. It's not not just coming to a retreat and sitting still. The Buddha spoke of three fields of training. So he laid it all out for us. It's very simple, not easy to do, but simple to understand. He talked of three fields of training that deepen our practice. The first of them is the refinement of our commitment to sila. Sila is the Pali word for morality or non-harming. This is a practice for us because there are so many levels of refinement of understanding what non-harming means. Non-harming of ourselves, non-harming of others. And as Eugene spoke last night, 
it's most commonly formulated as the five basic precepts within Buddhism. Precept of not killing, not harming others physically. Just think how different the world would be if everybody followed even just one part of this one precept, if people didn't kill people. The world would be a transformed place. Well, most of us probably don't go around killing other people. But how are we with animals? You know, or insects, or little things we don't like. What's our first response? Do we take out the can of raid and... Or do we have and develop a respect for all life forms. It's important to pay attention in this, and we spoke about this earlier in the retreat, to really deepen our connection and our respect. Every living being wants to go on living. So can we honor that even in small beings? And of course there are real life ethical dilemmas. So we have to work with that. We explored this a bit some days ago. It really becomes the basis for strengthening our feeling of love and care and kindness when we take this precept to heart. The second precept is is not stealing, not taking that which is not offered. We could translate this sort of in a more positive um, statement as developing the quality of contentment. So not only do we not go around taking things that don't belong to us, we actually learn to be content. Sort of honor the principle of simplicity in our lives. There's a wonderful Ryokan story. He's a Japanese monk, hermit, poet, Zen master. That was mentioned last night, and he's just a wonderful, wonderful character. He was living in this little hut up in the woods, in the mountains of Japan. Very poor, he had almost nothing. And one day he came back to his little hut And he found that even the few things that he had had been stolen. And his first response, he was was a wonderful poet, he created, wrote, thought of this haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. (laughs) it's a wonderful little haiku but it really made me think suppose we came back to our homes everything was stolen oh the moon at the window (laughs) (laughs) probably not (laughs) well can at least point us in a direction you know, and I, I kind of see this as the, the positive side of the, the not stealing. 
right, of just contentment. The third of the precepts, huge area in many people's lives, and that is the precept to refrain from sexual misconduct. Now, sexual energy, as we all know, is such a powerful force. And it's so easy to get caught up in the passion of it. It's often when we feel most alive and most connected. But it takes a great deal of awareness and mindfulness and sensitivity. This arena is not outside of our spiritual practice. It's contained within it, and we need to bring awareness to it. One of my all-time favorite Burmese English translations happened <coughs> when Upandita Sayadaw was talking about desire and this precept. And he said something in Burmese. <coughs> and then the translator said, by way of translation, lust cracks the brain. <coughs> and I thought, that captures it. <laughs> You know, when lust is strong, it does crack the brain. <laughs> and any newspaper, any day, you know, it's filled with stories of what people do when they're not paying attention, when they don't really see this as part of a spiritual life. So we need to bring attention. Basically, the precept is saying, refraining from sexual misconduct in its broadest strokes, it's saying, refrain from those sexual activities that cause harm. Cause harm to others, cause harm to ourself. You know, is it involved in deception? Is it involved in some kind of exploitation? To really pay attention. So it's not killing, the respect, a reverence for life. And really playing at the edge you know, at those times of real uh, ethical dilemmas, to have compassion be present. Not stealing, developing that quality of contentment, refraining from sexual misconduct, bringing attention to this arena of our lives, honoring it, taking care. The fourth of the precepts, I think in some way is the one that provides the biggest opportunity for us to practice mindfulness in our lives. It's a huge area, and that is refraining from wrong speech. We spend so much of our lives talking, and our speech has power. It affects our own minds, it affects our relationships, it has karmic consequences. And the Buddha singled out, you know, in the Eightfold Path, which is the path to enlightenment, to liberation, the Buddha singled out right speech as one aspect of the Eightfold Path. And yet how often or how seriously do we take this as a practice in our lives, where we see that speech is as important as our sitting practice? Probably not that often. So speak about it as a reminder 
But this is a chance to practice staying awake, practice being mindful. And it has huge consequences. The Buddhists, he laid out, you know, what are the kinds of speech that are harmful? I mean, the first is obvious. It's not lying, not saying that which isn't true. And so it's helpful just to look in our lives, in the way we speak, you know, the big lies, the middle-sized lies, the little lies. And begin to look at the motivation behind even small untruths, even when we shade the truth. At the end of one three-month retreat, there was a yogi. We were having some group discussions and the yogis had already been talking with each other. And he was just reporting back to the group. He said he noticed that whenever he was in conversation with another yogi, and they would be talking about their sitting practice, and you know, how long did you sit for, how long did you sit for, he noticed that he always added 15 minutes. <laughs> in, in one sense, it's a harmless, but really, what's going on in our minds? What are we doing? What's the motivation? <clears throat> Is it, do we, do we shade the truth out of greed, out of self-aggrandizement, out of trying to protect ourselves in some way? This is another yogi story. It's not the same yogi. But again, at a three-month retreat, at IMS, there's, you know, the kitchen, and then there are some big walk-in <coughs> refrigerators and freezers. So one night, <coughs> staff person came down and went into the big walk-in refrigerator, and they saw this yogi in there with his hand in the box of dates. <laughs> <laughs> and the staff person was very kind of nice and friendly and said, can I help you? And the yogi kind of in you know, the moment of fluster said, oh, I was looking for the maintenance department. <laughs> <laughs> It's like first response, protect. <laughs> it's amazing that it really is quite difficult to be totally truthful. You know, this is a real practice, and I'm amazed at why it should be so difficult. It seems like it would be the simplest thing in the world, and yet we have all these conditionings in our mind. And so bringing mindfulness to that and making a commitment. Can I really speak the truth? Some years ago, I read this amazing book. It was called Life and Death in Shanghai by Nian Cheng. And it was about a woman, sort of a rather upper-class Chinese woman, uh, imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution in China, and, you know, she describes the horrendous, I mean, she was tortured a lot, you know, for years at a time, because they wanted her to implicate uh, Chou Enlai, who was the then premier, you know, they were looking for a way to engineer his downfall. And they said that she, she would be released from prison if she would, you know, make this declaration implicating him, which was not true, and she refused to do it. 
you know, so strong was her commitment to the truth, and she stayed in prison and was continued to be tortured. And then finally, after years of this, they released her. She had never, never signed anything. And just as they were releasing her, again they said, you know, you need to sign this or declare this or we'll put you back in prison after years of this ordeal. And again she refused. I, I read this and it was just so amazing. This commitment to the truth. It said that the Bodhisattva, who, you know, the Buddha to be in all of his many lifetimes, did a lot of misdeeds. He wasn't perfect from the get-go. He worked on it. But from the first prophecy that he would become fully enlightened, become a Buddha, you know, countless lifetimes ago, it said from that moment, even though he broke all the other precepts at one time or another, he never knowingly said that which was untrue. So it's like planting the flag in our lives. Can we do that? Can we really make truthfulness the center of our lives and of our speech? It's a tremendously powerful, strengthening practice. So, not lying. Second kind of wrong speech, Buddha suggested avoiding, is refraining from harsh or angry speech. Because it really creates ugliness in the world. And the Buddha said, karmically, it's the cause of ugliness. But we can see it. You know, when people are very angry and venting their anger at one another and speaking harshly, it's creating an ugly environment. How do we feel when somebody's directing that kind of energy towards us? It's not pleasant. Words have power. The energy of speech has power. And so we want to use it in a skillful way. The Buddha was suggesting, speak kindly, speak gently. The third kind of unskillful speech is perhaps the hardest to give up. Not lying or speaking that which is untrue, not using harsh language, angry language. The third is not gossiping. It's quite amazing. Years ago, when I first got interested in practice, I read about all this. I made the resolution I wasn't going to speak about a third person. I wasn't going to speak to someone about someone else. 90% of my speech was eliminated. <laughs> it was the most astounding discovery <laughs> to see how much of the time we're speaking about others, even if it's not malicious, even you know, if it's well-intentioned. What's the joy of it? What are we <laughs> what's the reward for us? It's helpful to take a look at that. Very often, I think, it's simply strengthening the sense of self, the sense of I, as we speak all these comments and judgments and assessments of other people. It's very freeing to actually re- refrain from that kind of speech, especially 
when it's not kindly. What I found was that as I stopped giving voice to so many of my judgments about other people, I found that my mind became much less judgmental because speech reinforces the patterns. It's not without consequence. So not only is it the cause, as the Buddha mentioned, the loss of friendship, it really has a strong effect on our own minds. It's peaceful to let go of that kind of speech. And it really creates an environment of tremendous friendliness. It takes practice because the habit is so strong. And sometimes there's another kind of gossip. Sometimes it's not about other people. But sometimes it's as if we engage in speech. It's kind of a gossip about ourselves. What I mean by that is, you know, sometimes when we get into patterns of great self-reference, where all our speech seems to be pointing back to ourselves in one way or another. You know, and so that's just another pattern that we can see and begin to let go of. We don't need to feed that. All of these practices around speech as well as the other precepts contributes greatly to the quality of peace, of happiness in our lives. Well, Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the Vietnamese Zen master, poet, peace activist, a wonderful teacher, he said, happiness is available. Please help yourselves to it. <laughs> we need to understand the causes of happiness and then cultivate those causes. Last kind of speech the Buddha mentioned that is worth reducing, refraining from. There's lying, there's harsh, angry speech, there's gossip, backbiting. And the fourth was useless talk. Sometimes I'm amazed at how much of my talk is completely useless. You know, just in a social engagement, you know, with friends, hanging out. Now, something comes out. It's so wonderful when I'm mindful enough to see it coming and to make a choice in them. I don't have to say that. You know, and then kind of settles back down. My mind is so much more peaceful. We're not dissipating our energy so much. Now, as you listen to this, please take it not as, it's not in the sense, as all the precepts, it's not in the sense of commandments. They're really rules of training. This is our practice in the world. And we can do it, and it makes, it makes our practice alive. Not killing, not stealing, refraining from sexual misconduct, refraining from wrong speech. The fifth precept is to refrain from taking intoxicants which cloud or dull the mind. And it's clear, if we're on a path of awakening, <coughs> we don't want to take things which just bring about a state of stupor. So where does this commitment to morality or non-harming come from? 
where can we draw strength in our lives to actually apply this, to make it a practice, to bring it to life? I think it draws strength (coughs) from two sides. It draws strength from our growing, deepening feeling of metta. As the metta, as loving feeling grows stronger, the sila, the non-harming, flows naturally. As we have friendlier feelings towards all beings, we don't have that impulse to harm others because we're really seeking their welfare, their benefit. It's cultivating the motivation of goodwill. But with this, we also don't want to create some kind of Pollyanna ideal, you know, and then try to live up to a pretense. It's very grounded in how we actually are. This was expressed (coughs) very succinctly by the poet W.H. Auden. He said, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) 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 It just captured it. You know, we, we are who we are. And right from where we are, can we cultivate that feeling of goodwill? Okay, the second place our commitment to non-harming, to sila, draws strength from, is our understanding of the law of karma. It's our understanding that all of our actions have consequences. They have consequences for other people, they have consequences for ourselves. And the consequences depend on the motivation behind the actions, which is why we need to stay very mindful, stay very aware of what our motivations are. There's one phrase in Buddhism which... It's one of those phrases that opens up the whole Dharma. It says, everything rests on the tip of motivation. That's how important understanding our motivations are. Because all the karmic consequences of our actions It's not dependent so much on the action, it depends on the motivation behind it. You know, are we speaking or acting out of greed, out of hatred, out of ill will, out of judgment, out of love, out of compassion? We need to know, we need to see our motivations. It's not easy. We need a lot of clarity, we need a lot of honesty and truthfulness and courage to take a look and see what actually is in our crooked heart. You know, can we open to it? Among Dharma teachers, there is, this is, this is by way of preface to a little story. Among Dharma teachers, there's a great uh, competition good stories. Okay, sometimes we get quite ruthless. Okay, that's the background. <laughs> so I was on retreat one time and I was reading through the suttas and I came across this one discourse of the Buddha that I thought would make a great story for a colleague of mine who was writing a book on faith. 
So that was my first thought. I read it and said, oh, this would be great for a book. And my second thought was, no, I'll keep it for myself. (laughs) (laughs) And then my third thought was, no, I'll give it the story, but that way more stories will come back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Trusting in karma. And then I thought, no, that's just being selfish in a more underhanded way. I'll give her the story. I'll just give her the story. But I'll also tell her this whole mind process that I've been going through, you know, kind of hoping to inculcate a little sense of debt, I think. (laughs) (laughs) And my mind just, I I could just, the fruit of the retreat was not that this didn't come, but rather that I could see it. I was just watching my mind click off this whole series of conflicting motivations. And it was quite amazing. And finally, after some time, well, where in this whole mass, you know, is generosity to be found? <laughs> and I realized it was to be found. Right there in the first moment, the very first thought that I had, oh yeah, she'll, she'll really enjoy this story. And so even when our mind goes through a whole series of conflicting or unskillful motivations, if we're attentive, if we're not simply acting out, we can always come back to that place of purity, whether it was the first one or something we come to at the end. It's very important that we pay attention to what our motives are and the actions that come from it. Finally, after my retreat, I gave her, showed her the story. She didn't even want it. So as we practice sila, as we make it a practice, this is a field of training. This is not just something, you know, a list we have. All of these are trainings that we can apply in our lives. The training in sila, in all of these ways, becomes a very transforming and purifying force in our lives. The Buddha talked about it in so many beautiful ways. He said, that sila, or morality, or non-harming, is the true beauty of a person. That's the true beauty. We, we spend so much time and concern about outward beauty, and it really means nothing. It's our commitment to non-harming. That's where the beauty is. Sila gives a tremendous gift to everybody. When we are committed to non-harming, we are, through our actions, giving the gift of fearlessness, of trust, because we are saying with our actions that no one need fear us, that we are not going to harm anyone. Well, what a gift in the world to be giving the gift of trust. That comes through our own commitment. And we give a great gift to ourselves. It's the gift of non-remorse. And it works from the moment that we commit or recommit ourselves, because we've all done lots of things, good things, unskillful things. So it's not to kind of dwell in guilt or remorse about past actions. From the moment that we recommit, 
to the practice of sila, to the practice of these precepts, to the practice of non-harming, from that moment we are establishing in ourselves this tremendous place of strength and peace. It transforms how we live. Padmasambhava was the Indian sage who brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. He was a great, great master who had the most expansive wisdom and understanding. He said, though my vision is as vast as the sky, though my insight or my wisdom is as vast as the sky, that is insight into emptiness, my attention to the law of karma, of cause and effect, consequences of actions, is as fine as a grain of barley flour. And so here's this great adept with the most expansive understanding of the emptiness of all phenomena, realizing that at the same time, our attention to our actions has to be as fine as a grain of barley flour. That's our practice, and that's the practice we do in the world. So this is the first field of training. The second field of training the Buddha spoke of is what he called the training in samadhi, the sila, which is non-harming, samadhi. In this sense, samadhi means those qualities of mind which we've been particularly developing here, that is concentration, right effort, right mindfulness. How do we do this? The practice of samadhi is not limited to a retreat. We can practice it in our lives. How do we take this aspect of meditation practice into our life? This is the great challenge. Okay, we've talked during the retreat of different mantras. This is, this is the going home mantra. Sit every day. Sit every day. Okay, say that mantra a hundred thousand times. <laughs> you know, here we've been on retreat, sitting six hours, seven hours, eight hours, however long, you know, walking some hours. You think, oh, I'll go home, sitting an hour or two, no problem. It's a problem. <laughs> it's hard. We get so busy, so engaged in our lives that we start just trying to squeeze it in between other things and before you know it, it's squeezed out. And this happens. In order to keep the practice going, we need to make a time to sit. We need to make it a priority. A few months ago, I was at a conference and I was listening to somebody who was a Vipassana student, a psychiatrist, very busy, very busy guy in the world, family, kids, the whole, the whole thing. He said something which totally inspired me. He said that in the last 20 years of his life, he has sat an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening without missing a single day. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was quite amazing. 
and you could see it. You could see it in how he was. And this is somebody busy, engaged. He made it a priority. He did it. So just keep that as a possibility. And maybe for you, it's not two hours a day. Maybe it's one hour a day. Or maybe it's a half hour in the morning or a half hour in the evening. Whatever it is, be disciplined in the regularity because that will deepen your practice. Okay, what I'm about to say is for the really hard cases. Right? People who just find it impossible to keep a daily practice. So everybody else, don't listen. <laughs> this is just for those people. This is a surefire method, a guaranteed method to keep your practice going when you find it impossible you know, to sit. Make your commitment every day to at least get in the posture. That's all. That's your commitment. I'm going to get into meditation posture. Mm-hmm. Is there anybody who could not do that? Mm-hmm. Okay, make your commitment. Because what you will find quite magically is that once you're in the posture, you might actually sit for a minute or two, <laughs> or three, or five, or 30, or 45, that somehow in our lives, it's the transition, it's the disengagement that's difficult. It's not the actual sitting. So if you make the commitment just to get in the posture, that will serve you tremendously. But do it. Unless we're committed to a regular practice, it's very hard to sustain a strong level of concentration and mindfulness. The sitting is such a powerful support for it, and it's such a balance to the busyness of our lives. Sit every day. Awareness of the body. All of the hours of walking practice you've done. You don't have to be walking down the the streets of Kansas City, lift, move, place. (laughs) You can walk at a normal speed. Make it your practice. Becomes walking meditation. Instead of walking down the streets of wherever, you know, and having the mind lost in thoughts and plans and worries, can you take this training and be aware in your body, feeling your feet on the ground, We take a lot of steps in the course of a day. If we practice making each of those steps a time of mindfulness, it will be very strengthening for us. Watch the tapes. Watch the thought tapes. It's amazing the power thoughts have. And the thing that's so startling to me is the power thoughts have when we're lost in them and how empty they are when we're aware of them. But somehow, because we're not very mindful of our thought process, it's like they become the dictators of our mind. You know, when thoughts are arising, do this, do that, go here, go there. They're just thoughts. It's sort of like the Wizard of Oz. 
You know, there's kind of a lot of bluster, but there's nothing really there. Sometimes I like doing the exercise when I'm out in the world. I might be sitting in a restaurant or wherever, walking down the street, and I just start really watching my mind and imagining that all of the thoughts arising are coming from the person next to me. <laughs> it really changes one's relationship. So cut it out. <laughs> we invest so much reality in our thoughts, forgetting what they really are. We're believing them. We're getting caught up in them. My first teacher, Anagarika Manindra, he had a wonderful line. He used to say, the thought of your mother is not your mother. It's a thought. But how often do we have thoughts of our mother or whatever and actually take the thought to be the thing, take the thought to be the reality, forgetting that it's just this little wisp of nothing. But when we're not mindful, when we're not attentive, it seduces us again and again and again in the most powerful way. And so we live our lives just acting out all of these conditioned thought patterns. We want to bring that awareness. Not only, we want to bring quality of interest. What is this phenomenon of thought? You know, we, we may have gotten some practice in recognizing the different patterns planning, judging, remembering, whatever. But you might take it a next step. And just in those moments when you're aware that you're thinking, it's as if you're asking the question, what is this phenomenon of thought? What is it? So you really go into kind of the mystery of it. This phenomenon of the mind that has so much power when we're not attentive and is so empty of substance when we are. Well, it's tremendously interesting and fascinating and liberating. There's a Korean Zen master from the 12th century or so. His name was Shinul. He was one of the the main, you could say, founders of Korean Zen. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful teachings. He said, don't be afraid of your thoughts. Only take care, lest your awareness of them is tardy. So we don't have to be afraid of our thoughts. We don't have to do battle with them. It's just to be attentive, so that our awareness of them is not tardy, is not slow. So we sit every day. We pay attention to the movements of our body. We watch our thoughts. This is all in our life. This is not, we can do this fully engaged in the world. We also want to watch the range of our emotions so that we don't simply drown in them. Just as we've been doing here. You know, we go back to the world and we get involved in our relationships again with other people, the whole range of emotions are going to come. We'll be happy and sad and angry and depressed and joyous and judgmental and fearful and all of it. Instead of just getting lost in all of that and then acting out each emotion's behavior, can we remember that it's possible to be mindful, to be aware, 
to see if we can feel the emotion in the same way that we listen to a sound. And now the sound of the birds. We're just sitting and open and the sound is appearing. Could we stay that open to the emotions that are expressed in our mind and body and just feel it and watch them wash through? Years ago I was on a rafting trip up in Idaho on the Snake River. And I was, this was like the first time I'd been on a whitewater rafting. We were in uh, some boats with a guide, but along on the trip they had this little inflatable kayak. You know, it's, it's sort of like a bathtub toy only, you know, big enough to be in. So it's just this little rubber inflatable kayak, you know, for people to jump in and play on the river. I thought it looked like great fun. So I got in to this little kayak going down the river and you know, after a few minutes, the guide is shouting at me, watch out for the hole. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> the concept hole in river didn't, <laughs> you know, there's a hole in the ground, what's a hole in a river? Well, I was to soon find out. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, you know, the, when the river goes and it goes over a rock in a certain way, you know, and it's, it can create a little whirlpool on the downside of the rock, and you know, if it's a big enough rock and a fast enough current and whatever the conditions are, you go into it and you're pulled into this little vortex. So I'm kind of cruising along in my little bathtub kayak, <laughs> <laughs> totally ignoring the guides because I didn't know what she was talking about. You know, over the rock into the hole, and I was really pulled down. You know, and. But fortunately, I was wearing a life vest, you know, and the life vest kind of pushed me back up, but it was so strong it pulled me down again. You know, and it was one of those moments, you know, it was an intense moment. <laughs> so I'm pulled down again, and then the life jacket, you know, brought me to the surface, and I kind of pushed me out of the hole. You might be wondering what relevance this has <laughs> to anything. I see mindfulness as the life jacket. Now, as we're going through our life and we're pulled into the hole, the various holes of these strong emotions, these whirlpools of emotion, we don't have to drown in them. We don't have to get totally lost, totally consumed by them. If we're wearing the life vest of awareness, of attentiveness, of mindfulness, even as they come, even as we fall in, it brings us back to the surface. Oh yeah, this is what's happening. And the stronger our mindfulness, the more easily we navigate the river. All of this has tremendously pragmatic consequences for happiness in our lives. This is not theoretical and it's not something to do only on retreat. Our life is our practice. But we need to do it. So the first field of training is the refinement of sila, and really making each one of those precepts a practice for us, making us more conscious, aware. The second field of training is the development of samadhi, just as we've been doing here, to do it in the world. The third field of training is the field of wisdom. And the compassion that comes from that clear seeing, from that place of insight, 
There are different ways to explore and to develop the sense of wisdom. Or the, the foundation quality to develop wisdom is the ability to listen, to listen carefully. Mother Teresa was asked by an interviewer what she says to God when she prays. I don't say anything, she replied. I just listen. So the interviewer asked her what God says to her. He doesn't say anything, said Mother Teresa. He just listens. (laughs) If you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. That captures sort of the quality that we're cultivating and that allows wisdom to grow and to manifest as we listen, as we listen to God and God listens to us, listening to the truth, what's revealed are many of the things we've talked about during the retreat. We begin to develop the wisdom of seeing impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness of holding on and of selflessness. But there's another frame as well for understanding this field of training, which I'd like to talk about um, this evening a bit. And it's the teachings, which in Buddhism called the teachings of relative and absolute bodhicitta. Now, bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word. Bodhi means awakening, enlightenment, wisdom. Jitta means heart or mind, combined. And so bodhicitta literally is the heart-mind of awakening. It means the aspiration in practice. It's the aspiration that our practice and our lives be not just for ourselves alone, but for the benefit of all beings. So this is what bodhicitta refers to. The aspiration that our practice, that our lives be for the benefit of all. On the relative level, bodhicitta is the quality of compassion. Compassion is that strong feeling that can arise within us that wants to alleviate suffering wherever we find it, whether it's within ourselves or other people. Compassion is that move to alleviate suffering. And it arises when we allow ourselves to come close to suffering. That's the cause for compassion to arise. This is a profound and difficult practice. We may want to be compassionate and maybe often feel that we are, but it's not easy to really let either our own or the suffering of the world in. Just as we don't like to be with our own pain, as we see every time we sit, it's not easy to just open to it. We often also don't like to be with the pain of others. And so we have all kinds of strategies for defending against it. We defend, we keep out, we push away, we resist. We may be apathetic to the suffering of others, indifferent. 
like to read just a few uh, lines of a poem by Mary Oliver, who is a wonderful poet. Uh, it's called Beyond the Snow Belt. Over the local stations, one by one, announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away, a wild place never visited, so we forget with ease each farm mortality. I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And when I read that, it just struck this very responsive chord, given how much input we have in our lives. How do we respond to the suffering two counties north or three countries south or the suffering across the ocean? And it's so immense. How can we open to it? How can we let it in? <coughs> we need to start with ourselves and those people closest to us. This is where we start in our practice. So in our practice, in our meditation practice, in our lives, can, can we really undertake it as a practice to watch what happens when we come close to suffering and watch what our minds do? You know, do we become afraid? Do we become indifferent? Do we pass over it? Do we let it in?
do we let it in? How are we with our own difficult emotions, painful emotions? As we learn to open and come close to our own suffering and stress, it gives us the strength and courage to open to the suffering and stress of others. This is the place of compassion. This is what we need to do. And it happens in different ways. At first, it may be the feeling of empathy, you know, where we slow down enough to at least begin to actually feel what's going on. But compassion is something more than empathy. It's not simply this feeling for the suffering of others. Compassion contains within it that motivation to act, to respond. Thich Nhat Hanh, again, he expressed it so well, he said, compassion is a verb. So when we develop the aspiration of bodhicitta, may my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all beings, we slowly begin to become responsive to the needs of others, responsive to the suffering of all beings in whatever way is appropriate, whatever way is possible for us. Now, and there are so many stories of people with tremendous courage at times, being willing to open to the suffering that's there. I think it's important that we, we find our own way in this. At times it might be very small gestures, un, almost unregarded, being a little kinder to the people near us. Or if we want to push a limit a little bit, try giving a gift to somebody that's really difficult in your life. You know, where we just begin to open rather than keep out or push away. Sometimes, of course, there are examples of people who are, who are truly heroic in this capacity. Just recently I was reading a book about the last two years of the life of Martin Luther King. Even though I was living through those years, the book just brought to life the amazing, amazing quality of heart. And it was describing the marches in Birmingham, Chicago, and Memphis, where he was finally assassinated, and the amount of hatred and violence that was directed towards him. It's staggering. And in the midst of all that, not only towards him, but to his family, and in the midst of all that, his tremendous commitment to nonviolence and to love and to be willing to open to the suffering of the people you know, around him. It was tremendously inspiring. Well, we may not all be Martin Luther King, but can we do it in our own way, even in very, our very immediate circumstances? We have to be conscious that compassion comes and flowers as we're willing to open to suffering. Our own and others. Can we let it in? As we 
plant this seed of bodhicitta, this aspiration, may my life, may my practice be for the benefit of all. As we plant the seed, slowly it begins to take root in our lives, begins to spread. This is something from uh, Henry David Thoreau, who's wonderful. If you haven't read him since high school, it's wonderful reading. He said, Though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me that you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. (laughs) The power of a seed. And so we plant the seed of bodhicitta. It may not be fully developed, and it may be a tiny little seed that we're planting. Or it may, the seed may even be the aspiration to have bodhicitta. Maybe we just see it as a noble idea, but we don't really feel it yet. Fine. If we plant the seed, show me the seed, and I'm prepared to expect wonders. Okay, so this is relative bodhicitta. <coughs> the development of compassion in our lives. Absolute bodhicitta. This is understanding or realizing the nature of awareness, the nature of emptiness, the wisdom mind. It's the mind that is not clinging to anything, the mind that is not identified with anything, that is not fixated When you look for this mind, this wisdom mind of awareness, there's nothing to find. You can look and look and look, and we can't find anything. And yet, and this is the great mystery of awareness, this cognizing function, this knowing function is happening moment after moment. There's a book by Robert Kaplan called, was a mathematician, he wrote this book, on the history of zero, and they called it The Nothing That Is. So when I read that title, that's ultimate bodhicitta, (laughs) The Nothing That Is. And the opening sentence of the book, he said, look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And that's what we're discovering in terms of the nature of our own minds. It's not outside. It's not something outside of ourselves. It is the nature of our minds. Okay, if you, if you have patience for like five more minutes. <laughs> There's an image, a beautiful image, or a appropriate image, which describes this move from ignorance to wisdom, from ignorance to awareness. And it's the image of ice and water. Ice represents the mind that is contracted, that is solidified, that is identified with one thing or another. It's caught up in its various attachments or holdings or clinging. It's caught up in the contraction of self. That's ice. Water represents the nature of mind 
that is unfixated, unfrozen, non-clinging, the mind of no clinging. Okay, so right here is the great wonder of our minds. Ice is frozen, solid, contracted, the strong sense of self. Water is fluid, open, unfixated. But water is nothing other than melted ice, than unfrozen ice. Freedom in the mind, the nature of the free mind, is nothing other than not identified, not contracted around anything. So it's not something in the far-off future. Right in this moment, can we unfreeze the mind? Can we go from ice to water, letting go of identification, of attachment, right in the moment, for a moment? Now the problem that comes up, often we may think that we actually are flowing along in water, but it's really slush. (laughs) And this is where the refinement of the practice and the continuing deepening of practice where we just, through our refined attention, are letting go of more and more subtle levels of contraction, of identification, until we really come to that place of zero, the nothing that is. And here's where it all comes around again in the most beautiful way. As we realize this absolute nature of bodhicitta, state of open, empty awareness that's not fixated, not identified with anything at all, not even with awareness itself, the mind totally transparent, totally open, the expression of this emptiness is itself compassion. Because this non-fixated mind is completely responsive to the circumstances of life. It's like water coming down from a mountain to the ocean. You know, the water responds to the topography. And as it comes down, it finds the shortest way to the ocean, always adjusting to the topography of the land. When our minds are fluid, are open, are not frozen, it is continually responsive to the circumstances. Circumstances of our lives, circumstances of other people. Okay, one last little story. And it's just illustrative of the wonderful spontaneity and openness and ease of the unfrozen mind. The Dalai Lama is just such an example of this. I was at a conference, a Buddhist Christian conference at Gethsemane Abbey in Kentucky, where Thomas Merton lived, several years ago. And His Holiness was there. And the monks of the abbey were taking him around the monastery before the conference began, kind of showing them all around and you know, showing what they did to for livelihood. And later that evening, the opening night, the Dalai Lama was giving the opening talk, and he was recounting the tour you know, during the day. 
And he said, you know, it was really wonderful, and the monks took me around, and it was really impressive. And at the monastery, what they do for livelihood uh, is they make cheese and fruitcake, you know, and then they sell. So the Dalai Lama was saying, you know, as we walked around, they kept offering me cheese, but I really wanted a piece of fruit, fruit cake. And he burst out laughing. <laughs> yeah. And then he repeated again. He gave me all this cheese, and I really wanted fruit cake. <laughs> it was such an amazing demonstration of ease and openness and humor and non-self-importance. And, and it was just this manifestation you know, of what a really open heart is like. I really like that story because it was just an imprinted that quality. You know, it wasn't he wasn't giving any profound teaching. He was just demonstrating. So I'll close with just a few really clear expressions of this union of the relative and absolute nature of the mind. The relative level being compassion, the absolute level being the empty, open awareness. And again, don't put this outside of yourself. This is not something outside in the future. This is the nature of our minds now. The mind's nature is vivid as a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. When you recognize the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this is our practice. And this is the practice we bring to the world. It's a training in sila, refining our commitment to non-harming. It's a training in morality, in samadhi, in all the elements of concentration and mindfulness. And it's a training in wisdom. And this great manifestation, this precious, precious flower of bodhicitta, the aspiration for each of us that our lives and our practice be for the benefit of all beings. That's it for a few minutes. Thank you.
Thank you very much for your patience. I'm very... Got off pretty easy. <laughs> Thank you.